Welcome everybody to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 251 recap on Twitter spaces. It's Thursday, May 18th, and we have a bunch of interesting guests to represent various news and we have a special segment also we're starting this week and maybe we can just go through introductions. Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work on Bitcoiny things at Chaincode Labs. Gloria? Hi, I'm Gloria. I work on Bitcoin Core, mainly Mempool and P2P. I also work on Bitcoin Core PR Review Club, dedicated to help people learn about the code base, and I'm funded by Brink. Carla? Hi, everyone. I'm Carla. I work on Lightning Things at Chaincode Labs. You stole Merch's Bitcoiny things. Sev? Yeah. Hi, I'm Severin. I work at Synonym on Blocktank, and also I run Ellen Router. Uh oh. <laughs> Merch is telling me he can't hear Gloria or Seth. I'm Dan back. I'm back. Dan, you're back? Yeah, I'm, I'm Dan Gould. I work on Bitcoin privacy. I'm focused on PayJoin and the basic interactive transactions. I like to include tool funding in that, so this conversation is going to be interesting. Well, we got through intros. We'll take the newsletter. If you're following along at home, I'll post some tweets as well if you're in the spaces. This is newsletter 251. We're just going to go through in order. We have quite a few news items this week, and we'll just take those sequentially. And that first item that we covered in the newsletter is testing HTLC endorsement. And Carla, I know you and Clara have been working on some research that we've had you on to talk about, about potential reputation mechanisms and channel jamming mitigations. Do you want to maybe summarize the, the research you've done and then we can get into the proposed specification that you have up now. Sure, thanks, Mike. So this work is based off some research that Clara and Sergi from Chaincode Labs worked on a while ago, and I know that you've spoken about it here. But to summarize to, to folks that may be new here, the claim that we are making is that to properly address channel jamming in the Lightning Network, we need a two-pronged solution. The first is upfront fees to compensate nodes for what we call fast jamming. So the idea of just being able to stream failed payments through a node incredibly quickly. And then to complement that, we need a kind of reputation scheme to mitigate slow jamming. And the reason that we claim that we need both of these things is because if we just have a reputation scheme, there is always going to be some type of threshold, no matter how good a reputation scoring is, that an attacker can hit just below. So if you need some success threshold or some resolution time, an attacker will always be able to adjust their payment behavior to fall just underneath that reputation scheme. And then in the case of upfront fees, uh, we have this tension between something being expensive enough to deter an attacker, but not too expensive for an average user. So in the case of like multiple repeated transactions, we don't think that any kind of fee scheme would be able to address that kind of long hold case. So we think that we need these two solutions. We've been working on the upfront fees thing, which is sort of still in the works. And this piece of the puzzle is the reputation scheme which has two components. The first is what we call HTLC endorsement, which is a very easy concept. It's just when you pass an HTLC onto the next peer, you say, hey, I endorse this HTLC, meaning I think it's gonna behave well, or I don't endorse this HTLC, I'm not sure how it's gonna behave. And the second component is a reputation system, which is where 
you as a node, when you receive that HTLC and the person, the peer that sends it to you says, hey, I endorse it. You take a look at that peer and say, well, this peer endorses this thing, but do I think this peer has been behaving well? And that reputation scheme helps you decide whether you pass it on as endorsed or unendorsed so that you also have some feedback into this scheme. And the idea of using both of these things is that we can divide the resources that we have in the network for payments that we do endorse and we do think will behave well and payments that we don't know anything about. So when the network comes under attack, payments that we have from peers that we have a good history with will be able to use some portion of liquidity and slots so they'll remain unjammed and the payments that we're not sure about, potentially the payments that are attacking us go into a sort of wild west bucket of liquidity and slots where maybe they'll jam us, maybe we won't, but at least we've preserved some functionality for the kind of known actors in the network. Carla, is this HTLC endorsement just a, a binary thing? I do or I do not endorse it? It's not some sort of a scale, is it? Yeah, it's just a, for what we've pr proposed, it's a one or a zero. I think in Lightning, along a route, it gets very tricky when you have a value that's decreasing per hop because it makes it very easy to, you know, kind of see where you are in the route based on how much that value is decreased. So for now, it's a one or a zero in our proposal, but we have also been discussing this idea with a few other folks. And there is some interest in a continuous value as well. And the, the mechanism or the algorithm by which you, your node would determine to endorse or not is based on this some sort of a reputation score calculated locally at that node. Are you, as part of this proposal, recommending a particular algorithm or just the ability to communicate endorsed or not for, for these HTLCs? So we are recommending a sort of reputation scoring algorithm. We're still working on it. You know, it's quite an early stage proposal. But the idea we want to capture is that a node needs to have paid you in routing fees the cost that they can inflict upon you if they then choose to use your their good reputation with you to jam you. So the way that we express this is by looking at the HLCs that a node has forwarded us and the fees that they paid and the amount of time that they took to resolve to kind of make what we call an effective fee for the HLC. So if it went through quickly and it paid us fees, we count the fees that you paid us towards this kind of reputation score. But if it went through very slowly and maybe you held up our liquidity for a long period of time, we will penalize you for the long hold. So an HTLC that succeeds, but maybe takes an hour to succeed would actually still negatively affect your reputation because this is, you know, sort of unusual, atypical, potentially malicious behavior. So we calculate the effective fees for each HTLC. That's what we call them, effective fees, because they're kind of adjusted by resolution time for each HTLC that a node has ordered us. And then we do that over a longer period of time. And we compare that to our nodes routing revenue, just regular fees that we forwarded in a, in a period of time, which is much shorter, with the idea being that to build good reputation with me, over a long period of time, you need to send me consistently good HTLCs that are paying me fees so that when I give you good reputation, if you start to abuse it, you've kind of made up for it because you've paid me the routing fees that I was earning anyway. It sounds like one potential way this could be activated or, or turned on, if you will, is behind an experimental flag. It would 
seems then if that's the case, you would be able to run this on some subset of the network and, and sort of see how things behave and, and then adjust the algorithm or the mechanism accordingly. Is, is that the plan? Yeah, that's sort of the next step that we're looking at. I think that we want to look at two different things. The first is that we've made a recommendation that endorsed and unendorsed HTLCs, we split channel liquidity 50-50. And we want to sort of fact check our belief that in the steady state of the network, a node not having good reputation will not affect its ability to make payments. So one piece of information we want to gather is sort of information about how saturated channels are in regular operation, because if they're 90% saturated all the time, then nodes being not endorsed is actually a big deal for regular operation. And then the other thing that we'd like to do is just get some nodes who are kind of, you know, mindful about the way they run their node to actually run this dry run, this reputation scoring and see what it looks like just to make sure that our instincts are correct. And we can do this in a fairly nice way because Lightning is pretty flexible. We have a full range of experimental TLVs, so extensions we can add to any message. And any value above 65,000 is just totally experimental, wild west, do what you like. So what we'd like to do is implement this reputation scoring as kind of an application that you'd run next to your Lightning node, possibly in Circuit Breaker, which I think is a project you've spoken about in these spaces before. And then also start to experimentally attach this endorsement field in the experimental range so that, you know, we don't have to add it to the spec. There's no harm caused by it and start to observe what this would look like. I think one thing that is difficult about trying to get this data is that these endorsement fields do chain. So they're passed along, you know, they're passed along the route and they're either a one or a zero. And if someone isn't running this data gathering thing, we're just going to have to record that as a zero, right? If the chain is broken, then we have no data for that. So it may be a little bit difficult to gather information about endorsement, but I think we can still learn a lot about reputation by just like doing some data gathering in the wild. And I think that the data gathering could help convince some participants of how effective this would actually be. I know Christian Decker maybe had the question about exactly how many forwarded payments would actually receive a boost or not from the scheme. Do you have comments on that? Uh, yeah, question? absolutely. So I think, and that's before him, but I think Christian's question is, how many nodes will feasibly be able to get good reputation in this scheme, right? Because it is a scheme that relies on sort of consistently forwarding payments to your peers to build reputation. And if you go quiet and you have no activity for a while, you won't have good reputation. And then if the network does come under attack, you're kind of jostling with the attacker to get those scarce slots in the, in the lower Wild West bucket. So this is something we definitely want to figure out as we experiment with this reputation scoring, because Clara and I suspect that it won't be a big deal if nodes do not have high reputation. Because if you're a very inactive node on the network and you're unable to gain high reputation, you're probably not using the network that much, right? So in the normal state, we hope that you're completely unaffected because lightning channels aren't saturated. And in the attack state, you know, maybe you, it's a bit diff more difficult for you to make payments in the short term. But if you're someone who was making one or two payments a month anyway, this isn't critical, right? We can't have a perfect solution for this, but what we can do is 
gradually degrade so that the really active nodes in the network are still able to make payments and maybe temporarily during attack the edges suffer a little bit or in more competition with an attacker and then as the reputation uh, mechanism updates and the attacker is kind of stifled by this lack of endorsement then the network returns to regular operation but like totally agree with christian's criticism and lots of open questions that we hope to address with a bit of data Rich, do you have any follow-up questions? None from me, thanks. Carla, any call to action or anything to, to wrap up with on this topic that you'd like folks to know? Yeah, I guess the call to action is that if you're running a Lightning node and you're interested in contributing, we're going to be putting out in the next month or two an implementation of this scheme. And if you're interested in running it on your node and volunteering some anonymized data to us to help push this forward, that would be great. Reach out to myself or Clara. Excellent. Carla, you're, you're welcome to stay. In, in fact, you may have some opinions on this zero conf dual funding discussion, but if you're busy or need to drop, feel free to drop. Thank you for opining on this first item. Thanks, Mike. I'll oh, hang on. Did Danny have a question? Did Andy have a question? Yeah, I'm curious how much can be learned from the banking system here. It sounds like if you're extending credit worthiness, like you're sending credit to someone to forward their payment, it's a cost to you, potentially. Banks have been doing risk assessment for as long as they've been around. And like how much has been learned from them or could be? I think what's very different in Lightning is that when you receive an HCLC from a node, you don't know that it's from them. Whereas banks like have very transparent in, like insight into who is the origin of a transaction. So we have looked at like some other sort of networks that have this type of thing, but I think Lightning is really unique in that it's onion routed. So the ability to sabotage one one player, you know, transitively is something that we need to account for. And we also have money built in where other systems don't. So I think that we can learn a little bit from other types of systems like this, but you know, when you go to the bank, they ask you for your ID, your proof of residence and all of those things. And that's primarily how they quote unquote, keep things safe. So lightning is very different in that regard. I think that it's also a different resource that is being negotiated here. I wouldn't liken a HTLC as a credit. It's more of a opportunity cost because you're locking up funds and resources that are only available for some time versus with a credit, of course, you might lose money. And so it's, I think it's maybe just too different also in, in the regard of what we're negotiating. Next item from the newsletter is request for feedback on proposed specifications for LSPs. And I was not aware that there was a group working on this, but apparently there's a LSP spec group and Severin is here to discuss his post about two potential specifications for interoperability for LSPs and their clients. So Sev, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, sure. Of course. I hope everybody can hear me. So yeah, we, great. We at the LSP spec group, we are working on a specification that should enable interoperability between wallets and LSPs. Basically, the goal is to make LSPs plug and play, like just switch LSPs whenever you want. Right now, how current wallets implement it, like it's basically custom code that talks to an LSP 
and you can't switch an LSP at all. It would take way too much effort from a development point of view. And for that, we have created or we are working on multiple specifications in the LSP spec group. We have three specifications that are up for review at the moment. LSPS0 is basically the base protocol, how communication should work between a wallet and LSP. It's a JSON RPC protocol, which could be also interesting for other projects potentially in the future. Just to give a hint, if somebody wants to develop something on Lightning, this is a very cool RPC that lets you talk to your direct peer if you if somebody wants to create a project there. Then we have LSPS1. LSPS1 is basically an API where the wallet can ask or can purchase a channel from the LSP directly. It's basically you create a peer-to-peer connection to the LSP, like a normal Lightning peer connection, like this done day by day. And then you ask, or you, you hand over, not hand over, sorry. You ask the LSP for a certain size channel that the LSP tells you what's the price for this channel. And then you pay either via Lightning or via on-chain, and the LSP will open this specific channel. Then on the other side, we have LSPS2, which is JIT channels, just-in-time channels. Just-in-time channels is a technique that when you don't have money on your wallet, you're basically a new user in the Lightning Network, and you want to receive payments, then you kind of have the problem you need a channel, but also you need to pay the channel with some funds. But you as a new user, you don't have any Bitcoin so this is quite quite hard. So what just-in-time ch- just channels do is you create an invoice, and as soon as a payment arrives at the LSP, the LSP will open a zero kind of channel to the the wallet, your, your to the new user, and after it opens the channel, it will forward the payment, and it will deduct the fee directly from this first payment. Yeah, this is just-in-time channels, very useful for onboarding new users. And then we have other specifications that are in the pipeline that we are still working on. And they are not really ready for like a final review. I mean, everybody is welcome to join our calls. These are things that we are working on. This last one is the, we're working on a spec for LSPs that if there is an incoming payment, the LSP can potentially wake up mobile wallets. So if you have a, like a mobile app, then to receive a payment, you actually need to have the app running. The Lightning node needs to be online to receive a payment. And there, the last one, we're working on a way for LSPs to actually call the the app provider that then actually can wake up the app if it sees there is an incoming payment. Yeah, that is basically it. I mean, the most important thing is, yeah, call for review. LSPS1 and LSPS2 is in a state where everybody should look have a look at it. They are, we think they're basically complete. They're very mature. But now we are calling everybody outside of the LSP spec group that they should have a look. 
So there's an LSP spec group and you guys have meetings it looks like every other week to discuss the spec and we covered LSPS 1 and LSPS 2 in the newsletter this week but there is also LSPS 0 which sort of defines the, the mechanism to of, of how you communicate and then it sounds like you have two other spec recommendations that are in the pike. So I guess the, the call to action to folks would be if you're involved with lightning service providing to join the Telegram group or, or join those calls and also review these LSPS 1 and LSPS 2 specs. Yes, exactly. We have calls every two weeks on Wednesday. I will tweet out the Telegram group and how to get into the calls after this Twitter spaces. Uh, yeah, call for review are these two specs that are very mature already. And uh, yeah, please join us if you're interested. Merch, any follow-up questions? All right. Thanks for joining us, Severin. You're welcome to stay on for the remainder of the discussion, or you can drop if you have other things you need to work on. Next Thanks item for having me. News. Yeah, absolutely. Next item from the newsletter is challenges with zero-conf channels when dual funding. I can kind of give a, a brief overview of these components, but I'm curious if Carla also has some insight into here with her lightning expertise but you know essentially tbas posted to the lightning dev mailing list some of the challenges about using zero conf channels in conjunction with dual funding the dual funding protocol and the, the mailing list post got into some specific examples and, and considerations but in one of those being doing this not just one time but having multiple of these at the same time it seems like there could be some issues and as a reminder to listeners zero comp channels are channels that can be used even before that opening channel transaction is confirmed and this is combining then with dual funded channels which are channels that are created using forthcoming dual funding protocol which includes channels which have an open transaction that has inputs from multiple parties so each each side is putting in some funds into the channel, which is nice, but there's some potential issues there. Carla, what's your level of familiarity with these considerations? Unfortunately, not very high. I think that the complexity just comes in with the fact that when you open a zero conf channel, which isn't dual funded, you can be sure that it's not going to be sort of double spent away. And then when you start to do dual funding, you run into all sorts of nasty pinning attacks, which seem to be everywhere in Lightning. And I think the real concern is the idea that someone could open a dual comp zero, a dual funded zero comp channel to you and then sort of start to forward payments through your node, through one of your legitimate channels, and then double spend away the, the, the zero comp channel so that you've kind of been drained of funds that won't, won't ever arrive on the other end. But yeah, as the newsletter says, I don't think there's really a satisfactory answer here. Doing zero comp things is dangerous and it's a difficult problem to solve. Go ahead, Rich. Yeah, I was reading that mailing list thread uh, earlier today, and my impression is that so zero conf channels essentially work by the lightning service operator or the, the opener of the channel, assuming that since they control the original funds, they know that they won't double spend themselves. And therefore, if they extend the ability to spend the lightning channel balance before the channel is confirmed, they know it'll eventually go through because they can make sure that it will confirm and thus they can, <clears throat> can get back their funds. 
But once you get the dual fund in there, A, you get the UTXOs of the other partner so that they can add more. Well, they, they can double spend and you also no longer control the whole balance. So some of the funds may have gotten, would have ended up with you. So it, it just seems fundamentally incompatible to have both zero conf and dual funding. And the, the main idea or the main takeaway from the three or four mailing list posts was just if you want to do turbo channels or zero conf channels, only open the channel from one side. And if you want to use dual funding, well, don't use zero conf. And the, the term that T-Bast used in, in his mailing list post was liquidity griefing. So when, when Carla was outlining that in, in Merch as well, that's the that's the term that I saw in there that he used. Thanks for that overview, Merch. Anything else you think think we should talk about on this topic? All right. Moving on to the next item from the newsletter this week is advanced pay join applications. And this was a post to the Bitcoin dev mailing list from Dan, who's joined us today about maybe using pay join for something more than just a simple send and receive payment. And we noted a couple examples of maybe more advanced transactions that could involve pay join, but I'll let Dan maybe walk through what is pay join at a high level and then maybe some examples of more advanced uses of pay join and maybe why it's important. Sure. Thanks, Mike. So pay join at a high level to me is an interactive transaction involving two participants. So two people both contribute inputs to a transaction. The reason we want this is because all of Bitcoin surveillance rests on the idea that inputs to a transaction come from a single party. So that's even in the white paper. Satoshi said common input ownership assumption. This assumption is the privacy problem we need to solve. So PayJoin came to be in 2018, framed as a merchant customer protocol where a merchant runs a server and a customer sends them a proposal to pay them. And then that proposal can be updated with a transaction containing the merchant's input. So that's great. It breaks the common input ownership heuristic and it increases privacy for everyone on the network. There's a lot more we can do with that. And I think the main issue with that is it's not necessarily incentivized. You have to do all this extra interaction to get the receiver to run a server and then the sender needs to actually send them an HTTP request and get a response. So I think dual funding is one way to incentivize this kind of transaction where both nodes contribute inputs to a lightning channel. It's pretty easy to spot. It doesn't really give you privacy as is right now when we're using script multisig channels, but with Tapper uh, like music channels, I think you'll have the stenographic advantages of using PayJoin where people can see or where the transaction is ambiguous to other transactions it's hard to see is it a channel open is it one person sending money is it two people contributing money together so another way that this mailing list post covers to increase adoption is by either forwarding payments in a pay join so instead of just alice paying bob 
Bob can pay his vendor at the same time because Alice proposes an initial transaction and then Bob replaces the output to that transaction with a substitute output forwarding that payment along. Bob can also, if Bob were an exchange, for example, batch a bunch of payments forward. So if Bob received a deposit from a or received a large deposit, he could split that deposit output into multiple forwarding outputs that go on to pay user withdrawals, for example. That way the exchange would never even take a, an output and they would still, because of the HTTP authentication, because the networking uses a secure endpoint, it fixes a bunch of authentication problems where if Alice were to forward a payment to Carol or want to do that, there's no way to know she would, there's no way before, I, I should back up. So this idea of batching transactions or forwarding transactions, Dave Harding, let me know, was proposed by Greg Maxwell in 2013 as transaction cut through. And Greg suggested that these intermediary transactions like the one proposed by Alex DeBob didn't necessarily need to be posted to chain if they happened instantaneously and they could communicate somehow. So it turns out the pay join protocol from 2018 that's used in BTC pay server fixes that because you have the secure endpoint. So Alice can know she's definitely paying Bob and his his requirements are being met even though he's forwarding payments on to Carol. And there's one other thing that's not mentioned in the mailing list, which is that even Alice can batch payments, not only to Bob, but to further further destinations. But it's kind of outside of the scope of the page. And the point is that you can combine the techniques to have massive fee savings and increase the velocity of Bitcoin, the throughput of the network by using this one round communication protocol. Just very basic interaction improves privacy and scalability of Bitcoin. It sounds like discoverability is important here. You're, you're trying to discover the intent of maybe you're the recipient of, if you're sending to somebody, what where their intended spending of those funds might be. What What's... How do you solve the discoverability problem there and the communication involved with that? So the question is, if if Alice is sending to Bob and Bob wants to send funds on to Carol, how does Alice know funds get sent on to Carol? That, that's right. And applying it even even broader to, to you know, because in order for this to work, you, you sort of need to have like this matchmaking going on and it seems like there needs to be some discoverability there. But yeah, that's the general question. So the beauty of using PayJoin for this is PayJoin's discoverability is very simple. Alice knows she's talking to Bob because Bob gives her a secure endpoint, so like an HTTP server. And Alice does not need to discover any of the identities of people that will get forwarded payments. The original request, so PayJoin is, BIP78 PayJoin is a request response protocol. So 
Alice would first send a proposed PSPT that pays Bob, and Bob would respond with an updated version of that, including his inputs and potentially substituted outputs. So the discoverability happens when Bob substitutes those outputs. All of those payments he wants to forward are included in that proposal, and that is authenticated using TLS in HTTPS. So Alice knows that Bob's payment is getting satisfied, even if it may contain a number of payments being forwarded to other parties. So the discoverability happens kind of behind the scenes. Bob states his preferences without revealing necessarily the intention or the identities related to the destination. And Alice gets a proposal with an authentication code or a signature. She authenticates in some way that this actually comes from Bob and she knows, okay, this my payment to Bob is being satisfied because the proposal comes directly from him. What's up, Merch? Yeah, I was wondering, so if we think about an invoice scheme where you say, hey, I want to be paid to this address, and then the sender starts by building a PSBT and hands it to the recipient, but then the recipient changes their request wouldn't wouldn't it make more sense to originally already sort of have the the original invoice and code like the multiple outputs that you want to be paid to? It would, but I think constructing that is the difficulty. The idea here is you can use the BIP twenty one unified payment standard that's already supported by apps like Cash App, so it's all over the place, and you can just scan and make the proposal to one address output, even if that's going to be replaced later, because you have the luxury of interactivity. But yeah, if you could encode the, if the sender could just scan animated QR, for example, that had proposal PSPT containing all of the payments to forward, that would be better. The other thing that I wonder is if the sender basically changes, sorry, not the sender, if the receiver basically changes their mind on where they want to be paid, doesn't that sort of interfere with the proof? Like the receiver first put out a, hey, I want to get paid, and once you pay me to this address, I will consider our the service that you consume to be paid for. And then he later changes his mind. So now the sender doesn't have sort of the invoice that he can match up against with, like, I don't know, showing that they have paid. I, I Like, who, who are the people that are using the scheme and would want to have shifting outputs in their transactions? That I, I think it would maybe make more sense to add more outputs, but maintain the original output so that the proof chain of like, here's an invoice and the address did get paid and I can put that in, in my well internal accounting or whatever, or, or in my wallet. So it, it sort of seems to interfere with, with previous wallet flows. I'm not sure what flow exactly it would interfere with because the sender, sender still gets a response from 
fob at an authenticated endpoint. It's a requirement that the endpoint, it's a requirement that the proposal PSPT, the updated PSPT, is authenticated by Bob. So you can't use this with a relay to an unsecure endpoint. And that's what makes relaying it a little more difficult and why we need serverless pageLine. But I'm not sure why, you know, if that address changes, a sender would have a problem knowing that they paid because they're still getting an authenticated proposal PSPT from the receiver that they need to sign and that proposal is authenticated saying this is you know this is a good payment and either that or the original would be acceptable yeah i must have missed that the the psbt is signed thanks dan any calls to action or, or parting words i assume that you're looking for feedback on your mailing list post maybe there's other things that you sh should make people aware of yeah, that'd be great if you have any feedback or updates. I guess making it known that it needs to that there's an authentication component is is something I can update. You can check out pageon.org if you want to learn more about the basics of pageon, and you should ask your wallets if you want to see pageon to integrate it. We're working on bindings in the GitHub repo at github.com/pageon/rust-pageon. And get in contact if your project wants to integrate PageOne. We'll be releasing live in Bitmask app tonight. They're going live on mainnet. So you'll be able to check that out. Yeah, thanks for having me out, Tech. Thanks, Dan. Next news item for this week's newsletter is summaries of Bitcoin Core developers in-person meeting. And so we had a similar coverage in Optech about six months ago with the, the last core developer meeting in which there was a bunch of transcriptions for the different sessions that, that were held during that meeting. And this is what we're doing again now. A few weeks ago, there was a in-person core developer meeting, well attended, um, good amount of topics. We have write-ups here that actually link to the bitcointranscripts.com website that outlined a bunch of different topics we, we linked to. And then we called out two specific topics for special attention. And the first one is mempool clustering. And luckily we have Gloria on who could probably give a, a better qu quick summary of mempool clustering than, than I could. Gloria, do you want to Maybe provide a quick overview of what mempool clustering is and folks can read the transcript for more information. Yeah, sure. I think it, it stems from a lot of issues where we're trying to improve something in mempool or we have a huge bug in mempool or a huge limitation, let's say. And it it kind of just fundamentally boils down to how the mempool is structured and there being no inherent cluster limits. So I don't know how much we've gone over clusters in in the spaces, but so a not much. Yeah. Okay, okay. So hopefully people are familiar with the concept of unconfirmed parents and children. So a parent is a transaction you spend from, a child is a transaction that spends from you. And then you have the concept of ancestors, which includes your parents, your parents' parents, and so on and so forth, and descendants, which includes your children, your children's children, and so on and so forth. Um, and these two concepts are 
hopefully somewhat well understood and very much accounted for within our current mempool data structure in Bitcoin Core. However, what is often most pertinent, most relevant to a transaction when you're, for example, selecting it for for inclusion in a block template to, to mine it is much more than just its ancestor set and or its descendant set. So our mining algorithm includes just kind of this dynamic process of selecting ancestor subsets and then like updating their sentence and selecting ancestors and then updating their sentence. And then what ends up being relevant to a transaction is all of its connected transactions or its cluster. So that would include things like your parents' children or, you know, your parents' other child's parents' other child parents, other child. Um, And none of these things are in your ancestor set. And I apologize if it's kind of difficult to kind of talk about this without a diagram. But essentially, clusters are not not really a thing in, in our Bitcoin core code base yet. And it is kind of it is getting in the way of being able to do things more intelligently. And so what we'd like to do is add kind of cluster-based algorithms or accounting mechanisms within mempool. However, this requires kind of a fundamental redesign of how we of how we track transactions, how we update our mempool in the event of a block, how we et cetera, et cetera. And so for for users, hopefully this kind of redesign doesn't change very much about how you would think about sending a transaction. But when we're talking about building like a DOS resistant RBF policy, or we're trying to better select transactions that we might evict from the bottom of our mempool when it gets full, we'll see like much better decisions being made. So that's kind of the abstract concept. Hopefully that that helps. Yeah, that makes sense. Merch, anything that you would add to mempool clustering? Yeah, I think, I don't know if some of you might remember the research article that Clara and I put out last summer where we looked at cluster-based block building. The One of the things that we get out of cluster mempool is that currently when we have two parallel CPFP situations, that is one child, sorry, one parent with two children that each try to CPFP the parent, then our current mempool design would not be able to, or miners that are building a block template would not consider that both these children could be working together to bump the parent. And with cluster mempool, because we're now not looking at each transaction in the context of its ancestry only, we would be able to discover such situations. And it would actually improve a little bit how we build block templates, potentially collect a little more fees for for miners and make transaction situations in which, for example, multiple children are bumping the same parent go through faster as it would group the transactions together and have them compete for block inclusion at that grouped level instead of as an ancestor said. So, yeah, I I think this is one of the most exciting things that is going on right now in Bitcoin Core development because it's going to make a bunch of things much easier downstream, including work on RBF, including block building faster, including eviction being less broken. So yeah, pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
that I'm really excited about this because the eviction being broken is kind of being a bit of a blocker for for package relay, for example. So maybe as a concrete example of something that's really broken is we will select transactions for for block templates and based on ancestor fee rate. It's not just strictly its ancestor fee rate, but from there. And we will evict based on descendant fee rate. And this means that there isn't this like linearization like ordering of okay like if we were to build a block template this transaction would be number one to be selected this transaction would be number two etc etc and then we'd like you know we have an ordering of, of of how good each transaction is like a scoring system for example and then from eviction or so hold on so this would be amazing to have we, we do have a ranking right like we are able to kind of go through everything in our mempool and select which would be selected first, which one we decide is like kind of the best transaction to include in block templates. However, the way that we evict transaction is not to reverse that ordering and then evict the worst thing to be selected for block template. So we get into these situations where what you would evict happens to be something that you would also really want to select for your block template. Or you you would have something that would never make your block template. For example, you know, it's not part of an ancestor package that can be one sat per V-byte, but you also wouldn't evict it because it's descendant theory looks really good. And so there's this kind of like, you can imagine this kind of DOS where you're able to like add things. I, you know, for example, via package submission that would never get mined, but would also not get evicted. And if you were to, trim to saw if your your mempool were to get full you would evict other things that are actually better to mine than this dossy package and so this is kind of like really really bad and this is the main reason why i'm very excited about cluster mempool also i see that greg is here if greg wants to talk about cluster mempool i sent him a speaker invite if that's the case okay so i i want to highlight another point about this which is so if we select by ancestor sets, each package includes the transaction itself and all of its ancestors. But for each of the ancestors, we have yet another ancestor package. So we're inherently tracking transactions multiple times if they appear in some ancestor structure. With the cluster mempool, each transaction is only part of one chunk of a cluster. And once we select, we select by chunks. So transactions no longer group in multiple different packages, which means currently when we pick an ancestor set into a block, we have to update all the other ancestor packages that are affected because transactions are taken out of it. When we select chunks from clusters, the whole chunk goes, and we can just put the next chunk from the same cluster in, into our heap to sort to the top. So... Really what, what we do is we get rid of a lot of doing the same work over and over as we select a block template. So our expectation is that the block template building will be significantly faster and more incentive compatible. Anything else to add, Gloria? Nope. There is an issue open on the Bitcoin Core repo. Can't remember which number it is, but that's available for anyone who's more who's interested in learning more. It's two seven six Seven, seven. Yeah, link to that issue as well as a copy of the slides that were part of the presentation in the newsletter as well. So if you're curious, jump into that. 
I also jump into any of these other topics that were transcribed from the meeting, if you're curious. The other one that we highlighted from the core developer meetup was project meta discussion. And like I mentioned, I think if you're curious, you should jump into the, the details of all these transcripts. But the thing that we noted from this discussion was a, quote, more project-focused approach for the next major release after version 25. Maybe, Gloria, you can comment on, on that and, you know, maybe elaborate a bit? Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin Core is kind of extremely short-staffed. A lot of long-term contributors have been leaving. We still have, you know, almost 300 pull requests open on the repo and a lot of projects that we deem really important and or critical to the longevity of like this protocol being able to stand up and scale over the years. And so we've been, I think this is probably known that it's, we've been struggling to make progress on these gigantic projects that require, you know, really in-depth review. And so as part of this discussion, I think, it seemed like there was a sentiment in the room of like, why don't we actually try to prioritize these projects? And this has kind of been something nobody, or at least maintainers didn't really want to do because of kind of the criticism of like people trying to control Bitcoin, which is ridiculous. But I think like after you know, getting a lot of criticism and hate online, you kind of just say, okay, I'm just going to merge whatever seems ready. But it seems like everyone, I think everyone is like really excited and ready to try this out. So we kind of did a rough poll of what people think their top three projects they want to spend review time to be. And then there were like three or four ones that you know, seem to be to have really strong support. And so now we're going to try doing like essentially a weekly stand up in our IRC meeting. There's like big project tracking issues that are open on the repo and in our high priority for review board to, to help kind of give people a sense of a what's the thing to review to get this moving and what is kind of a reasonable milestone that we can fit into a release cycle to try to get momentum going and I think so far it's been really positive everyone's like motivated and it looks like we will hopefully get a good chunk of BIP324 the encrypted P2P transport maybe some package relay and maybe some kernel done for 26 so yeah like that's what project-based, project-priority, project-based release. I don't know what the word was, the terms were, but like, yeah, we're, we're going to try to push for like project-specific goals, at least for this upcoming release. And hopefully it works out. Mark, is there anything that you'd add to that? I got the thumbs up. All right. Yeah. Gloria, great insight. It seems like a fairly straightforward approach is to take projects that are down the line that, that seem to be important and take them across the finish line. And a lot of that is, is a review. Obviously, there's development to be done as well, but it's just sort of saying, hey, we think this is important and we're going to spend our time on this for the next few months. It seems like a very reasonable approach. So, Next section of the newsletter is a new limited weekly series that we're doing about transaction relay mempool inclusion and mining transaction selection in, a, in addition to Bitcoin core policy. And the 
first of these entries is why do we have a mempool? So Gloria, not only why do we have a mempool, but why is it important to highlight these types of discussions in the newsletter for the coming few weeks? Yeah, this is part of a 10-week series called Getting Transactions Confirmed. Given current events, this seemed pretty relevant. Core at least got a PR about removing standardness rules and various requests about adding mempool policy to prevent things like inscriptions or stamps. Or we also got a request to create patches for miners to run um, package relay, for example. We also get a lot of questions like, you know, why did my transaction fall out of the mempool and my wallet now thinks I lost this money? And we got, should I just increase my max mempool given, you know, how full it is right now? Does that help the network? Isn't standardness just devs imposing censorship? Why does my fee estimator suck so much? You know, all these kinds of questions and the hope is to answer them in the next 10 weeks. For me, at least it illuminated that there's not a really good understanding of how transaction really works and what standardness is, but also there's not a lot of accessible documentation and educational material about it either. So like the hope is not really to be like condescending and be like, hey, you guys didn't know this, but like, you know, we devs have decided that we need to have these extra rules. It's very, the hope is to kind of eliminate that kind of thinking and also encourage people to to think of like you know since there's so many applications building on top of bitcoin core and we're you know transitioning into this multi-layer ecosystem that transaction really and mempool is, is really an interface that we need to collaborate on the hope is that after this people will especially devs will have a better understanding of kind of the things that are there that are really important and also encourage people to open PRs and ask like, hey, this standardness rule got in the way of my use case, which is actually a really good use case. How can we change that in in a collaborative way? Because I think I also don't want people to think that, so one person commented like, oh, Bitcoin Core moves like really slowly. So there's there's no way we're going to be able to change standardness in order to accommodate this use case. So can we just like make this patch for a miner to run so that we can submit directly to miners? And that was really heartbreaking for me. And I want us to, you know, have a have a good standardness rule that, that works for the network. So that kind of brings me to the, this first one, which is like, I've tried to say it's, you know, the, func- the network functions the best when everyone has the same thing in their mempools. And that sounds very centralizing to some people, but I wanted to kind of explain, okay, wh- wh- why do we have a mempool? Like why, wh- and what makes our mempool useful? So that's kind of our first section. The first part, I talk a little bit about like, okay, if you're an individual node, what are the benefits of having a mempool, which is just a cache of confirmed transactions. And the main use is you get to kind of amortize, sorry, that's a bad word, distribute the the load of downloading, validating, downloading and validating blocks over the course of you know, while your node is running instead of in bursts every like 10 minutes or so. So since you have a mempool, you'll hear about transactions as they come in. Oh, I just, Merch just said, I said cache of confirmed transactions. Sorry, 
cache of unconfirmed transactions. And there's a bunch of other data structures as well, such as your UTXO cache, your signature and script validation caches. And these are all things that you populate when you hear about transactions on the network before they get confirmed. And this means that when a block is found, Everybody can essentially use a compact block relay, it read BIP-152 if you want more details, in which you really just need to forward your block header and some like short IDs, which is extremely, extremely small compared to the size of the actual, of the full block. And then you're like, all right, I already have all these transactions in my mempool. Cool. All the UTXOs are already loaded in my cache. I already did the computationally expensive work to validate the signatures and the scripts. Cool. Boom, boom, boom. And I can pass on the block. So from an individual node standpoint, this is really cool. You don't have these like huge CPU and network spikes every 10 minutes. I think there's like this anecdote, maybe from like a talk by Greg, Greg Maxwell a long time ago, where he talks about like they would be on video chats and then like every 10 minutes or so everybody's like video quality would go down because a block was just found and like their laptop or their computer is like downloading and validating the block. So with Compact Block Relay, you, you at, at least, like your computer does not go through this, this process every 10 minutes, instead just kind of like slowly does it over time. And then at a network-wide level, given the fact that everyone can download and validate blocks so quickly, the network-wide propagation speed is way faster. And this means that there's fewer stale blocks because as soon as someone's found a block, there's less, if two blocks are found at around the same time, for example, the race is resolved much sooner. And so this is like kind of, this is kind of a theme in, in mempool and transaction really is like, you find something that makes sense for an individual node to do. And then there's this kind of behavior that is network wide, that is also really beneficial. So that was, that's kind of like the first part of why do we have a mempool? And the second part is like, why, why not just submit directly to miners? And I wanted to get this out as soon as possible in the, in the first section of the first section. Yeah. Post of the series, because like, like I just said, everybody has their own mempool. Hopefully everybody has the same thing, but that's not always true. Right. And there's attacks where you can send different versions of transactions that conflict with each other to mempools all over the network. And this is really frustrating. I know this is really frustrating for for businesses and users that are trying to like use this to send payments, right? And I get this question all the time, which is like, why don't we just submit things to miners? So the first argument, it, sorry, am I just like ranting? <laughs> but the first argument is kind of tacking on to compact block relay that I just talked about. Whenever you send things directly to miners and only to miners, there is a 100% chance that every hop on the network cannot just use vanilla, like first compact block reconstruction and like understand that they have all the transactions already and then move on. Every single hop on the network has to do an extra round trip to relay that transaction. And so you, you kind of lose the benefit of, of compact block relay at any time only a miner knows about a transaction. And this is especially the case if, for example, you're going to submit non-standard transactions to miners. So that's kind of a very unfortunate consequence of, of doing so. But the main reason why, for example, we don't have a Bitcoin that's designed such that you have these kinds of centralized submission 
points is like the whole point here or one of the biggest values of Bitcoin is is to create this kind of censorship resistance slash private way of paying. And the that is enabled by the peer-to-peer transaction relay network. So for example, if there were five miners or 10 known miners that everybody submitted their transactions to, it would be a lot, like way easier to, for example, have all of these miners log the IP address of the person who submitted each transaction. And then to take it a step further and for, say, a government to say, okay, 10 miners, they only have to go to 10 entities. You have to be compliant with these rules. You cannot accept transactions from IP addresses that come from this country. We also ban this list of addresses. So if you see a transaction sending money to this address, you have to drop it on the floor. Um, And this kind of undermines basically one of the, I would say, the use case for Bitcoin, which is to avoid a situation like that. And furthermore, this decentralized transaction relay network where everybody kind of hears about transactions, everybody like essentially the best way to send your transaction is to join the network as an anonymous, you know, node and to connect to, you know, these anonymous peers, which may or may not be miners or they could be connected to miners and you send your transactions to them and you get to kind of obfuscate you as the originating node because it goes through all these hops and it could, it could go to anyone and it could come from anyone. And there, you know, you could also submit over Tor, which is like basically exactly the same idea where you're hiding your IP address behind a series of hops of, you know, nodes that don't know each other. Right. And so, yeah, like this is kind of the idea to hide who mines the transactions and who sent the transactions. And another, sorry, one last point of like kind of the benefit of everyone being an equal participant in this network is also anyone can then become a miner. So if you're unhappy with what's being mined today, let's say miners are just mining empty blocks or, you know, they're not mining your transaction or whatever, you can start mining. Of course, you know, hopefully you need the hash rate in order to do it, but there's no barrier to entry in terms of knowing about what transactions and thus fees you can include in your blocks. So like Harding wrote an example, which was, let's say, yeah, there's only 10 miners and you're a user and you're like deciding who to send your transactions to. Well, obviously you're going to send to the biggest miners because they have the best chance of confirming your transaction. And let's say this like teeny little miner with, you know, 1% or 0.5 or 0.1% of the hash rate joins the network. You're like, well, I'm not going to send it to you because like there's diminishing returns in like adding an extra step in my broadcast system. And so this then like means that that miner who like just joined the network will also not be able to include very many fees and that, you know, kind of just, changes the dynamic of kind of the accessibility or like the the entry cost of of becoming a miner. Whereas today, hopefully, like you can just spin up any node on the network and you'll hear about hopefully 99.99% of transactions that, you know, the big miners are also hearing about. And so there's this kind of like, essentially my main point is these philosophical like ideologies of what we want Bitcoin to be are enabled by this peer-to-peer network. 
And that works because each mem each node has a cache, <laughs> and just a cache of, of unconfirmed transactions. It's just a cache. And like, we don't have to think about it as being really that complicated for now, other than like, yeah, it's just a cache of unconfirmed transactions. And then at the very end, I'm like segueing into, well, your cache needs to be hot in order to be useful. So how do you measure, like say your mempool fills up, how do you measure what's going to be the most useful transaction to keep? And then that kind of leads us into fee rate and fees, which is a concept that is used in a lot of mempool policies. So stay tuned for part two, which is going to be our first section about mempool policy. Thanks for listening to my rant. <laughs> Excellent, Gloria. It's great to get Gloria mempool knowledge right from the firehose. And, and thanks for taking the initiative to write not only this, but the idea for the whole series. And, you know, I, I'm looking forward to having you on in, in future discussions to, to walk through the, the next write-ups. Merch, anything to add? No, I think we covered everything already. <laughs> Gloria, were you going to say something? Oh, I was going to say this is in collaboration with Merch. Thank you, Merch. He's also going to be writing a few of the sections, just Excellent. to make sure that's clear. Gloria, you're welcome to stay on, or if you have important things to do, you're free to drop as well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Next section from the newsletter this week is releases and release candidates. The first one we noted here was libsecp0.3.2, which is a security release. And I think we covered something similar a few weeks ago in which a bug or, or a potential attack vector is exposed due to optimization of the compiler. And so it looks like GCC version 13 or higher actually makes some optimizations that open up the possibility of a side channel attack. Merch, when we covered this previously, was it, was it just the, the, the pull request that addressed this or, or was it a different issue when we'd covered side channel attacks before? I think it was the same pull request and now this is the release that includes it. Gotcha. So if you're using LibSecP, consider upgrading for the security release. The next release we had this week is Core Lightning 23.05 Release Candidate 2, which is actually the, I think, the same RC that we covered last week. So I don't think there's too much to add. Merch, do you have a thought there? And then the last three release candidates are all for Bitcoin Core. So different release candidates for 23.2, 24.1, and 25.0. Merch. Given we're going kind of long today, did you want to jump into these this week or did you maybe we can do a deeper dive in the future? It's up to you. I I think let's just say obviously 23.2 and then 24.1 are point releases that are maintenance releases where backporting bug fixes and other issues. So don't expect any new features there. And the 25.0 release is the new release. And I think we should cover it next week because we're already at over an hour. Notable code and documentation changes. Bitcoin Core 26.076, updating RPC methods that show derivation paths to use an H instead of a single quote. Merch, why would we do this? So if you use quotes in strings in various serialization and input formats, you often have to escape them. And that becomes a little more complicated, especially with if people are not familiar with that. So you, usually you need to put a backslash before that. By using a regular letter, 
we can avoid that and it just becomes easier to use. This breaks, of course, with how it was done before. So there's a few downsides, like descriptors that use the new serialization will have a different checksum. And we had to put in some considerations for when you import private keys. So for private keys, we, we use the same format as we imported it with, so nothing changes there. But hopefully in the future for people interacting with descriptors, it'll get easier. Next PR from the newsletter is Bitcoin Core 27608. Bitcoin Core will continue trying to download a block from a peer, even if another peer provided the block. Merch, I, I just dug briefly into this and I don't understand what it, what the what the issue is here. Can you explain the, the concern about having multiple peers and downloading blocks from them at the same time? Honestly, I'm not 100% sure. I could see how it relates to somebody starting to give you a part of the block, but never finishing to give it to you completely, installing you out for a while. And in that case, you would want to have multiple peers provided to you in parallel so that if somebody is playing games with you, you are sure to get it quickly either way. I'm not sure if this addresses exactly that issue or if there's another issue here. But yeah, basically, we only stop looking for the new block once we have acquired and stored the old block. Makes sense in the sense that it should lead to us more quickly being ready to forward it and continue on with syncing. LDK 2286, allowing creation and signing of PSBTs for outputs controlled by the local wallet. So LDK is PSBT enabled now. Merch, I know you're a big PSBT fan. Any thoughts on this other than the, the headline? Good. More people should do it. <laughs> Next PR is LDK1794. It's the beginning of adding support for dual funding. And so this is not dual funding being rolled out in LDK, but some of the foundational methods for the interactive funding protocol have been merged into to LDK. So there's some progress there. Anything else you saw there, Merch? No, sorry. Next PR that we covered this week was Russ Bitcoin 1844, making the schema in a BIP 21 URI lowercase. So I, I, my, my understanding is that the, the spec says that the case is insensitive. There's some advantages for actually the uppercase URI Bitcoin colon being all capitals versus lowercase Bitcoin. But it's, it shows that there's some issues when you're using the uppercase that some of the applications are not actually opening up unless it's all lowercase. So it sounds like it changes, this PR changes that to, to be all lowercase then. Merch, what, why would there be an issue? Is this just like some client libraries not parsing the, the Bitcoin colon string in a case-insensitive way? Or is there something more going on there? And I see, Dan, you have your hand up. Do you want to say something, Dan? Yeah, my reading of the issue was it's the Android OS, actually, that doesn't recognize URIs that have the uppercase identifier, so like the Bitcoin colon part. And someone did submit a pull request to change that. And I hope it changes. So it's actually at the operating system level, then not even that, that application layer. Interesting. Merch, anything to add there? Well, I, I can put a little more color on why it's more efficient to encode big capital letters. So Please. the capital letters are encoded in the first, like in the smallest 
letter section of sorry not smallest letter section but they can be encoded more compactly in qr codes if you only have uppercase letters you can use i think a subset of ascii and your qr code will just have fewer boxes and generally appear bigger so it's easier to scan and so one of the reasons why bash 32m addresses and or bash 32 in general is case insensitive is that you could either do it uppercase for example for qr codes or you could do it lowercase and generally don't have to also keep track of the case when you're say dictating or copying manually so yeah Uppercase, everything would have been the most compact QR code encoding. Next PR to the newsletter is Rust Bitcoin 1837, adding a function for generating a new private key. I looked at the issue that spawned this PR, and it looks like there, there was just the necessity to provide additional information, including a source of randomness to the function, whereas now it looks like that's built in when you request a private key as opposed to you having to kind of put that together. Merch, did you get a chance to jump into this Rust Bitcoin PR? All right. And the last PR for this week is to the Bolt repository, Bolt 1075, updating the specs so that nodes should no longer disconnect from a peer after receiving a warning message from it. I don't know if there's anything notable other than that headline. Merch, I'm not sure if you dug into the motivation. I think we've talked about this a bit in the past, but any color to add there? I think that we're seeing this pull request now, especially because we've heard a few times about a lot of force closes in the last few weeks, which was especially painful at the peak of the fee rates, where people had to pay a lot to force close a channel that they might not even want it to force close. So I think it's been going on for a couple of years that the various implementations were working together to reduce things that cause conflicts and cause one of the sides to force close simply because almost never do we actually want to force close unless it's an absolute must. So how I'm reading this pull request is instead of always disconnecting on warnings, we now only disconnect on certain warnings where we do want to explicitly drop the connection. Excellent. Before I thank our, our guests for joining, I'll, I'll give a quick opportunity before we wrap up. If anybody has a question or a comment that we didn't address, feel free to request speaker access. But we do have a, we did have a great lineup of folks today. So thank you to Carla for joining, Dan, Gloria, Severin, and Merch. Did I get everybody? All right. And we will see you all next week for Newsletter 252. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Cheers.